Hi, friend. Thank you so much for downloading this podcast. And it is my sincere hope you'll hear something that will encourage, edify, equip, and then get you out into the marketplace of ideas. But before you listen, I'm going to tell you about this month's Truth Tool. My Truth Tool is offered to anyone who gives a financial gift to In the Market with Janet Parshall. And this month, I've chosen the book, Connecting the Dots, What God is Doing When Life Doesn't Make Sense. Ever been there? Of course you have. We all have been. Sometimes we think we're walking in circles, and we're wondering whether or not God has left us, we've walked away from Him, what in the world we're doing if we're even in the center of His will. So this book is designed to help you find peace and confidence in your current challenge. And all of us have challenges. It also will make sense of most of the lessons you're learning right now. And the most important part of this and why I felt this would be appropriate is because it will help clarify in your mind the unique mission and message that God has given to you. So the book is called Connecting the Dots. It's yours for a gift of any amount. And all you have to do is call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. And give a gift of any amount, and we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. If you prefer to do it online, that's easy as well. In the market with JanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. Click on through, make your gift, and again, we'll send you a copy of Connecting the Dots. Just below the picture of the book is a description of what it means to be a partial partner. Those are people who give every month a gift of their own choosing. They set the level of giving. I don't. But they'll always get the truth tool. And in addition to that, a weekly newsletter that goes out as well. So consider being a partial partner or getting a copy of Connecting the Dots by calling 877-JANET-58 or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. Now please enjoy the program. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely rare safety move by a major. 17 years the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. This Friends, welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. This hour, we're going to give you a history lesson. And it's all going to be undergirded by the profound truth that the gospel changes everything. And we're also going to show you what happens when there is a perversion of God's word and how it's misapplied to advance a political agenda. Now, that sounds like something stripped out of the headlines of the day, does it not? But in reality, we're going to go back a few years And we're going to look at an example of the twisted application of Scripture and the impact it had on this country, but how God used his word to turn things around. But I want to set this up by having you listen to a trailer from one of the best movies that I've ever seen. You actually hear me talk about it a lot. And if you look at history, it was pretty accurate in terms of the historical portrayal of a case that was built around a ship called the La Amistad. Here's the trailer. The movie was done by Steven Spielberg. Have a listen. Brig off the coast of Long Island. You can only assume that the charge is murder. We do hereby claim salvage on the high seas of the Spanish ship La Amistad and all her cargo. Your Honor, here are the true 
owners of these slaves. These slaves, Your Honor, are by rights the property of Spain. You and this young so-called lawyer have proven you know what they are. They're Africans. Congratulations. What you don't know is who they are. This could take us all one long step closer to civil war. Immediately surrender! These goods! Our president has appealed the decision to our Supreme Court. Bring the lobby! Yeah, you get it! You want to talk about freedom! We have to try the case again. I will call into the past and beg my ancestors to come and help me, for at this moment I am the whole reason they have existed at all. This is the most important case ever come before this court, because what it in fact concerns is freedom, the very nature of man. And the proof is the length to which a man will go to regain it once taken. He will break loose his chains. He will decimate his enemies. He will try and try and try against all odds, against all prejudices. To get home. If you've not seen this film, I strongly recommend it to you. It is historical. It is a fascinating case, uh, just if you're studying the law. It also, by the way, is one of the best telling of the gospel stories I've ever seen in a film. And not spoken in a language most of us would understand, and yet the salvation story is clearly laid out. So here's the background on this very important case. Sir Anthony Hopkins playing John Quincy Adams in that film. And you heard him say the line, one of the most important cases ever brought before this court. He's referring, of course, to the U.S. Supreme Court, and he was absolutely right. So in July 1839, 53 Africans revolted aboard a Spanish slave ship called La Amistad, as they were being transported by their enslavers from Havana to another Cuban port. And during this revolt, the Africans killed the ship's captain and another crew member, demanding to be returned to what was then called Mendiland, now is called Sierra Leone. But the remaining Amistad crew were able to divert the vessel from its course. On August 24th, a U.S. revenue cutter seized the Amistad off of Long Island and brought it into the port of New London, Connecticut. And the Africans were imprisoned at New Haven, Connecticut, while their case moved through the U.S. District and Circuit Courts. While he was offered opinions and advice on the Amistad cases, uh, while he did offer opinions and advice on the case as early as September 1839, John Quincy Adams didn't take a former role until a year later. Abolitionists visited the former president at his home in Quincy on October 27, 1840. Hang on to that date and convinced him to join the Amistad defense team when the case went before the U.S. Supreme Court. History records that in his diary, Adams noted his reluctance to provide further legal counsel. He wrote, I endeavored to excuse myself upon the plea of my age and inefficiency of the oppressive burden of my duties as a member of the House of Representatives. Let me pause in a moment from his journal. This is the only person, by the way, who was president of the United States and then became a member of the House of Representatives. He is, of course, the son of John and Abigail Adams. But Quincy goes on in his diary and says, the plea of my age and inefficiency of the oppressive burden of my duties as a member of the House of Representatives and my inexperience after a lapse of more than 30 years before judicial tribunals. He was a lawyer by training. However, the abolitionists urged me so much and presented and represented the case of those unfortunate men as so critical, it being a case of life and death, that I yielded. 
So the trial started in February 1841, and Adams began his oral arguments for the defense on the 24th, speaking for four and a half hours. Never would happen in the high court today. Four and a half hours with sufficient method and order to witness little flagging of attention by the judges or the auditory. That was noted in history. And he was pleased with his performance, and he modestly said, I did not, I could not answer public expectation, but I have not yet utterly failed. Adams returned to the court on March 1st to conclude his arguments on behalf of the Amistad Africans and spoke for another four hours. Wouldn't happen today. The court's opinion delivered on March 9th ruled that the Africans were free and could return home. As he revised for publication his oral arguments in the Amistad case, Adams mused in his diary on the current state of the emancipation cause in the United States. And he said this, remember a man who had a biblical worldview as did his mother and father before him. The world, the flesh, and all the devils in hell are arrayed against any man who now in this North American Union shall dare to join the standard of Almighty God to put down the issue of slavery. I'll give you a little bit more of this quote from his diary when we return. Remember, the gospel changes everything, even history. Back after this. Those times you felt like you were walking in circles were really God's way of leading you to his plan for your life. That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Learn how to make the most of the lessons you're learning now. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. So we're starting out with a history lesson that's very germane to what we're going to be talking about this hour and a reminder that the gospel changes everything. So again, in one of the most important cases ever brought before the High Court of the United States, the Amistad case was argued by John Quincy Adams, son of John and Abigail Adams. And he literally had almost nine hours of oral arguments. By the way, in the movie, the scene before the United States Supreme Court is filmed in the old Supreme Court, which is actually in the basement of the U.S. Capitol building. Craig and I have had the privilege of going down there. And as part of the scene, John, Ad- John Quincy Adams walks around the room and talks about the forefathers. And he points to different statues, including one of his own father, John, A- John Adams. Those statues are in that old building today. You have to have special permission to go down in that part of the U.S. Capitol. But I want to go back. They published everything in those days. And after the oral arguments, Adams wanted to publish his oral arguments. And he wrote, and I'm going to start from the beginning again, because this is powerful. The world, the flesh, and all the devils in hell. Why is that important? Because the scripture reminds us that our battle is against the world, the flesh, and the devil. He said, the devils in hell are arrayed against any man who now in this North American Union shall dare to join the standard of Almighty God to put down the issue of slavery. He lamented that his own physical infirmities prevented him from doing more to further the cause and said, what can I, upon the verge of my 74th birthday, with a shaking hand, a darkening eye, a dropsy brain, and with all my facilities dropping from me one by one as the teeth are dropping from my head, what can I do for the cause of God and man, for the progress of human emancipation? Yet my conscience presses me on." And so the following year, Adams recorded that his continued opposition to slavery produced considerable different reactions in the North and the South. 
While Northerners routinely wrote to him asking for an autograph, the letters he received from the Southerners were contained, often contained, in his words, insult, profane obscenity, and filth. Again, I recommend the movie to you in the powerful last scene of the movie when the decision is read from the bench. The actor portraying Joseph Story, who was, we didn't call him Chief Justice at the time, he was called Senior Justice. Joseph Story read the decision. In an interesting twist, Steven Spielberg made a directorial decision that, in fact, that character would be played by none other than former sitting U.S. Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman, who read the decision. Here's the paradox not to be missed. While he is talking about the fact that the Africans were human beings, not property, not chattel to be bought and sold, but were, in fact, human beings held against their will and therefore should be returned to their home in Sierra Leone. This is the man, Harry Blackman, the man that... Steven Spielberg chose to play Joseph's story. This is the man who is the chief architect of Roe v. Wade. So the paradox in the directing was Blackman, the actor, acknowledging the personhood of the slave, Blackman, the justice, failing to acknowledge the personhood of the preborn. So what about the gospel and its relationship with slavery and its grotesque misapplication, torturely, torturously taken out of context and used to advance the cause of slavery. Well, leave it to Abdul Murray, the president of Embrace the Truth, to pick up on this and write a piece with a headline that says how black historical figures saw through slavery's attempt to misuse the Bible and scripture. And then it's a powerful piece of history. And I'm so glad that he joins us today. He is a man, as you know, who speaks on campuses wherever the doors are open. He's the author of multiple, multiple books. His own faith journey is profound in and of itself. He has an undergrad in psychology and got his law degree from the University of Michigan, uh, from the University of Michigan Law School. His one of, our most, more, one of his more recent books that's again tied into our conversation today is called More Than a White Man's Religion, where the gospel has never been merely white, male-centered, or just another religion. Abdul, thank you for your grace and allowing me to take a little extra time to set up that case. You mention it in your piece that you wrote for the Washington Times. And it also is historically significant because the Civil War started April 12th, 1861. There was Adams who was arguing this case, by the way, prior to the start of the Civil War, the trial starting in 1841. So literally 20 years before the Civil War, there was Adams using um, the argument of the personhood of the preborn. By the way, quick side story, as a thank you, the slaves who were not slaves at all, the high court found out, the Africans on that ship, as a way of saying thank you to Adams, gave him a Bible as a thank you gift. Adams, upon receipt of that Bible, that said, and I'm paraphrasing, that the principle enshrined herein, referring to the Bible, is the ground on which I argued your case. That Bible today is under a glass case at the Adams House in Massachusetts, if you go to visit it. And it's, uh, in fact, there's a verse that the Africans subscribed from the Book of Psalms. So 20 years before our Civil War began, what led you, Abdu, to write this particular piece? Well, uh, Black History Month, and it's not, not uh, lost on me that here we are in the last two days before on this leap year where uh, Black uh, African American History Month or Black History Month has one extra day hmm. um, uh, this year than other, other days. And uh, so I'm thrilled that ordinarily I'd be talking to you on the last day. 
but hopefully people will take the last day of this uh, month to reflect on, I think, some of the things that uh, you elucidated on about the Amistad case. And uh, please do not uh, need to express any thanks for me letting you go on about it. It was a pleasure to listen to that. That was mm-hmm. uh, something else, especially the um, not only the, the trailer itself from a movie that I brings me to tears every single time mm-hmm. I watch it multiple mm-hmm. times, yes. uh, but also to hear you talk about the actual historical case, nine hours in front of the Supreme Court. I can tell you as a lawyer, um, <laughs> if you get 20 minutes yes. arguing in front of any court, you're lucky. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. So, yeah. Um, uh, what, what, what led me to, to, to really write this was, um, there was it, it, during Black History Month, I had written this book more than a white man's religion. And I was talking to somebody about um, uh, contributing a piece to the Washington Times, which I've contributed a couple others as well, um, on this issue of human dignity. Um, Because what Black History Month ought to teach us is that um, human beings have not been historically great at valuing other people. And I love the connection you made with Roe versus Wade because uh, even today, even uh, post-slavery, post-chattel slavery, we still uh, have a tremendous human rights crisis in the form of the unborn. And we have groundbreaking decisions being made by uh, other Supreme Courts, state Supreme Courts, about the nature of the person mm-hmm. happening very recently with regard to the embryos in the IVF case mm-hmm. that just happened. So we have a long way to go when it comes to this stuff. But the Bible is our base, our baseline. It is our platform. It is the, the springboard from which we jump into the pool of liberty that I think we ought to um, understand that these waters are the waters we truly bathe in. Yeah. I, I just love spending time with Abdul. He really makes us think biblically and critically as well. And this whole idea of Imago Dei being made in the image of God, it is profound. We're going to continue our conversation right after this. What a privilege it is to spend time with Abdul Murray, a man who has taught us how to contend for the faith. As we're reminded in the book of Jude, such a wonderful author, by the way, president of Embrace the Truth Ministry. I've got a link to the website, but I also have a link to a newsletter that Abdul sends out on a regular basis. And you would do yourself a big favor by staying in touch with his ministry because there's such thoughtful articles and uh, video blogs that are put up. In addition to that, you're exposed to the work that Abdu is doing on a regular basis. So sign up for the news. I've got a link on my page to do that as well. One of his more recent books is called More Than a White Man's Religion, Why the Gospel Has Never Been Merely White, Male-Centered, or Just Another Religion. And that dovetails perfectly into a piece he wrote recently entitled How Black Historical Figures Saw Through Slavery's Attempt to Misuse the Bible and Scripture. Now, why is this important? Not only does it set the record straight historically, but anytime there is a grotesque misapplication of the Scripture, it's imperative that you and I and the marketplace of ideas rectify this crooked thinking. If there is, in fact, a growing number of nuns, N-O-N-E-S, if people are, quote, deconstructing their faith, then let's address some of the issues that are allegedly used to keep people from going forward with Christ rather than moving backward in their thinking. So you wrote this piece, germane not just to Black History Month, but also to the fact that it's a fantastic history lesson. So, and one of the questions posed by your friend was, why would I believe in a God like that? A God that allegedly, in his word, endorses the idea of slavery. So, in fact, you quote, I thought this was fascinating, you quote 
a former slave by the name of Nancy Ambrose, who told her grandson that it was painful to hear Paul's words used by her master's minister. Tell my friends about that. Yeah, the, the, so this was one of those things where it's almost like the 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 precursor to a deconstruction that we would now have. And yes. as far as I can tell, Howard Thurman, as he told the story of Nancy Ambrose, uh, that she didn't ever leave her faith. It was just that this was uh, the, the during the days of slavery. Um, her master's minister would occasionally hold services for those slaves. And there were plenty of people, really well-known people, George Whitfield being among them, who were people who didn't necessarily condemn slave trading or slavery, but also did file it, find it find it compelling to preach the gospel to the slaves, an unadulterated gospel, by the way, um, which was different than what was going on uh, in their precursor times where there was the slave Bible, which was an edited Bible, um, which removed Exodus, which removed the liberation uh, messages in Paul's letters. Uh, but this one stayed. Um, and um, uh, she said that at least four or five times during the year, he used as a text, slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters. Mm. And that what she said, what Nancy Ambrose said was, I promised my maker, not myself, not my heart, but my maker, that if I ever learned to read and if freedom ever came, I would not read that part of the Bible. Mm. And what I, what I try to point out is that's a terrible tragedy. Not that she eventually, that, that, sla that slavery ever, ever came to an end. That's, of course, a wonderful victory. But that um, this woman, this faith-filled woman, found a part of the Bible to be so traumatizing that she refused to ever read it, even when she learned how to read. Um, so the tragedy there can't be gainsaid. Um, <clears throat> but what you, what you find out as you read the context of that passage and of the many different passages in the Bible is you find that the reason the slavers wanted to edit the Bible and leave certain mm. parts in, but edit the Bible was because it actually preached liberty. It preached the uh, equality of all human beings. And in fact, it was the Bible that not, not only inspired John Quincy Adams and the arguments he made and inspired the, the, the newly, uh, well, the not newly freed, but the um, vindicated Africans from the Amistad to send them a Bible was the same exact um, biblical message that inspired William Wilberforce to put 20 years, and for whatever reason, that number keeps coming up when it comes to uh, the abolition of slavery, but mm -hmm. 20 years of effort into shutting down the slave trade, uh, which would eventually lead to the shutting down of, of slavery altogether. And it was this message, this gospel message, that not only inspired William Wilberforce to, um, he actually, for a while, when he got his conversion, was so convicted of his own sin that he almost left public office altogether yes. so he could pursue ministry. Mm -hmm. And it was his friend who said to him, no, we need you. Not only was it John Wesley, not only was it um, uh, some other prominent figures who factored into this, but they said, no, no, we need you to do the real ministry of using this in public service mm -hmm. to end this barbaric practice. So that's why it's a tragedy because um, this one line, this one line is what caused her to not want to read that one line, but she knew the message of the rest of it. And I think this is important because what I try to point out in the piece is that the luminaries of our time, of, of those times, and in fact, one of the greatest orators and one of the greatest writers, I think, in American history, Frederick Douglass, saw through all of this. He saw through the misuse of scripture. He saw, he and others saw through the attempt to use the Bible as a weapon to baptize evil 
And he said, no, no, this is the thing that can wash us of this mm. evil. Um, and so that's why it's such a, in one sense, it's a tragedy what Nancy Ambrose said, but in another sense, she recognized that freedom would come eventually. She hoped in that. And I think it's because she saw that there was an ultimate hope in Christ himself. So much to unpack here, because so much of what you wrote about in the article is new history, and yet it's our history, and we need to know it. You talk about, and I'll just put this out because you can hear the music playing, that in fact, uh, there were something known as slave Bibles, where they literally redacted entire sections of the Bible that dealt with the idea of liberty and freedom, where the Spirit of the Lord, there is liberty, you know, and where there's real equality, right? Under the shibboleth of Christ Jesus, right? The ground is level, Jew, neither Jew nor Gentile, male nor female. You could superimpose black or white under that sentence as well. So talk to me about that, because what it says is, <laughs> slavery is awful as it was, the biggest threat to the slave owners and the segregationists was the Word of God, back after this. Our team of partial partners is growing, and I love communicating behind the scenes with this special group of friends who are devoted to giving a monthly gift to In the Market. Our partial partners receive private emails direct from me on issues we don't address on radio, and I even send a weekly audio message straight from my heart to yours. Ready to become a partial partner? Call 877-JANET-58, 877-JANET-58, or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. These kinds of conversations are so crucial because they help us understand the profundity of Scripture and we can contextualize it in history. And then we can say with bold assurance, the gospel changes everything. You went back to William Wilberforce before. He's buried in Westminster Cathedral along with poets and kings. And there's just a small marker that says, and I quote this all the time because I sat and wept when I read it, all of the adulations of people that are buried there and these monstrously ornate tombs for so many people that are buried. And yet, and Wilberforce's tomb, it says simply, he lived his life with the eloquence of the gospel. That's so profound. He lived his life with the eloquence of the gospel. By the way, Wilberforce's life reminds us that the mission field isn't a foreign zip code. It's the ground between your two feet. Had he left Parliament, what would have happened? By the way, they abolished slave trade in England way before the United States. And just think if that Christian influence were to be taken out of the marketplace of ideas. But talking about Christian influence, you write in the book and you use these words specifically and pointedly, and I think it helps us. You talk about race-based chattel slavery. So talk to us about what that means versus what Paul is talking about. I mean, slavery is anathema no matter how you look at it. it. It is the utter denial of the dignity of your fellow man. But there was a distinction of the kind of slavery that Paul was talking about and race-based chattel slavery. Talk to me about that. Yeah, absolutely. And and this is a, it's fair to say that whenever someone hears the word slavery, whether they see it in a Bible, New Testament or Old Testament, the first images that pop into their head is the most recent iteration of this horrible evil of race-based chattel slavery in our most recent past. And as you right. pointed out, in America, we didn't end slavery until well after the, the slave trade was ended in uh, Great Britain. Uh, so it, it, it wasn't that long ago, actually, that it was legal in this country to own people as property based on their race. And that's exactly what chattel slavery is. It's chattel, uh, is, which is a legal term, mm -hmm. uh, which means uh, a property. And race-based chattel slavery is owning a person as your property based 
almost exclusively on their race. Um, and so that's what we find in antebellum Southern slavery before the end of the uh, end of the war, before emancipation, before all these things ended. We found race-based chattel slavery. Now, what I try to point out in the book is that the race-based chattel slavery that we normally think of when we hear the word slavery, especially in the West, is not what the Bible is um, regulating um, uh, or prescribing in any way, shape, or form. What, rather, what's going on from Old Testament to even some iterations of it in the New Testament, because chattel slavery was allowed in the Roman Empire. It was. In Paul's day, it was. Now, not every time the word slavery was used or a slave was used in the Bible or even in the Roman Empire in uh, in the lingua franca of sort of the Mediterranean, which was mm-hmm. Greek, mm-hmm. Um, would, you, would it mean a chattel slave? But it never really meant race-based chattel slavery. So even when it did mean chattel slavery, it didn't mean race-based chattel slavery. But it didn't even always mean chattel slavery. In the Old Testament, what you had was um, indentured servitude. You had people who typically were actually voluntarily entering into a form of servitude where they they would give away their, not give away, they would sell their services to someone to whom they owed a debt or to someone else so that the debt could be paid to someone else. And the Bible actually regulates how you would treat such a person. We know it isn't the same because the Bible specifically says that um, beating slavery, uh, beating any servants in Exodus 21.16 is a capital offense. Mm -hmm. Trading in slaves in 21.16 is a capital offense. Uh, Kidnapping somebody and making sure that they become a slave uh, uh, um, uh, involuntarily is uh, is a sin. Um, so we know this already, but what is being regulated is the way you treat a bond servant or someone who is indebted to you and chooses to be so. So you can't uh, beat them. There's consequences to their deaths. There are consequences to their to, to, to uh, subjecting them to physical abuses. Um, and the, here's the real kicker. They're required to be set free every seven years, regardless of whether the debt is paid or not. They are required to be set free. Now, that's exactly where we get, by the way, I think our bankruptcy laws, where we have seven years Mm -hmm. of debt freedom from. It's a biblical thing, by the way. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what you have also is every 50th year, uh, in the year of Jubilee, um, when um, whether the seven years is up or not, if someone became a slave three weeks ago uh, or a bond servant three weeks ago, and the 50th, the, and the year of Jubilee comes upon us, they're required to be set free. And then here's the real kicker to the kicker, is that when they are set free, so that the person never enters into debt again, the, the one who holds the debt, the master, or what's called the Adan, uh, is required to give liberally to the newly unindebted person um, from the master's property, money, and cattle. Why? Because the Bible wants you to never have to go into this ever again. It Mm. wants your financial Mm. security so that slavery in this particular form, servitude, ends. We see this also in 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 Paul's day, uh, as well, where there's bond servitude, and when there even is chattel slavery. Paul specifically says, were you a slave, were you were called? Do not let it trouble you because you're free in Christ. But then he says, but if you are able to gain your freedom. So even where chattel slavery is talked about in the New Testament, Paul says, gain your freedom. Now, if he's talking about chattel slavery, he's saying, gain your freedom. If he's talking about bound servitude, he's saying, gain your freedom. In either sense, he's saying, gain your freedom. And and not only that, but just based on your explanation, does it not make perfect sense that in Romans 1, 
when Paul mm. says that he is a servant of Christ Jesus, he's referring to that bond servant, that indebtedness that he's yes. talking about. And that's mm-hmm. such a beautiful picture of the ransom that has been paid that sets him mm. free. So when you explain the historical significance of working off the debt in indentured servitude, it puts Paul's declaration of defining himself as a slave, some scripture translations say, others say a servant, doulos, mm-hmm. of Christ mm-hmm. Jesus, that he is redeemed and set free. So that just completely takes that whole idea and turns it on its head. But when you look at slavery, I mean, slavery was going on in Exodus. Uh, the mm-hmm. The Egyptians enslaved the Jews. The Babylonians enslaved the Jews. The Greeks enslaved the Sicilians. I mean, the slavery was all over the place. Every time there was a conquering, somebody else became a slave. But the distinction here in the United States, this ugly, nefarious, nauseating sin in the nostrils of our Most High God is this mm-hmm. race-based chattel slavery, right. the selling of human beings as property, hence the word chattel, race, mm-hmm. because they were taken um, from their homeland. So, I mean, Indeed. to see it twisted around in its application is unbelievable. So go back to Frederick Douglass, because mm-hmm. it would have been so easy for Douglass to have been angry. In fact, before you go to Douglass, go to the fourth century. You wrote mm-hmm. about a fourth century bishop there. Gregory of Nessa, who decried mm-hmm. slavery as early as the fourth century. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so the, the, one of the first recorded uh, abolitionists, uh, in, in one of the Cappadocian fathers, is considered oftentimes to be the first person in history to not just decry the treatment of slaves, but to reject slavery altogether. Um, and he, he laid the Bible, he used the Bible as the groundwork for his his, his um, abolitionist activism. So what you have is, in terms of what we can see across the world, as far as the records are concerned, is the, the first written record of someone who actually uses uh, the written word to be an advocate for the ending of slavery in general mm-hmm. is this um, fourth, fourth century monk. Uh, Gregory of Nyssa. So really, this idea that, um, and the reason why I think this is significant, by the way, Janet, for a number of reasons is because oftentimes we we associate enlightenment values with the thing, you know, the the throwing off of religion and and becoming enlightened and throwing off the dark Mm -hmm. ages as the beginning era of the end of inequality and the call for the, uh, the abolition. When the reality is a couple of things. First, Gregory of Nyssa was doing it 1400 years earlier. Um, yeah, so the Enlightenment, to quote an atheist, by the way, um, uh, an atheist philosopher from Italy, um, he said the Enlightenment was not new; it was just late. Um, uh, <laughs> and then he also he also pointed. We also see that this um, the, the Enlightenment not only borrowed from Christian ideals about equality, but the chief uh, the chief Enlightenment thinkers who were the chief thinkers about uh, abolition were in fact Christian. Enlightenment thinkers. So we often think of the Enlightenment as this uniformly sort of anti-God, anti-religion thing, when the reality was some of the best Enlightenment thinkers ever were actually Christians in the middle of that era. Hmm. Wow. And just unbelievable. So fast forward now to Frederick Douglass, because when you study the man, it would have been so easy for him to have been filled with rage. Hmm. And he didn't. He seized the opportunity and he redirected that anger and became this powerful man for uh, for declaring liberty and freedom. It's a philosophical question. I don't know that we'll be able to get the answer this side of glory, but mm. why do you think Douglas, and he was so aware of the, he talked about the pain, the pain and the whippings and the, the cradle mm. robbing that was going on. 
Mm. Why do you think he was able to take that and to turn it into the powerful eloquence that is part of the American history story now, as opposed to being mm. filling, filled with rage and in the end, utterly ineffectual? You know, and Frederick Douglass is one of my favorite historical figures, especially in black history, which is American history, mm -hmm. um, is because a couple of reasons why, and I think this is the providence of God, this is speculation, and I'll ask God when I get there, and I'll ask Douglass when we get there. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, you have this person who is a freed slave, and he has every reason to be bitter and angry. And here's what's interesting about Douglas. When you read his works and you read his life, he doesn't pull punches. He calls evil for what it is. And he calls out people sometimes for being evil. If you ever want to read something, read what slave it, what Fourth of July is to the slave. That piece of literature is pretty hard hitting and convicting. But I think God used, uh, I'm sorry, sorry, God gifted this man with such an oratorical Yes. force and power that he used a man whose heart he knew wouldn't be so hardened to Christ that he wouldn't be one of mm. the most, uh, the best progenitors of the gospel, uh, proclaimers of the gospel of his time. So it's God's providence that God used this man and his heart and his mind for this work. And Abdul, when we come back, you included part of that speech in your article. Will you read it to our friends when we come back? Because again, for many people, this is their first exposure to the power of gospel-based eloquence back after this. We're talking to Abdul Murray, president of Embrace the Truth Ministry. Again, I want to draw you to our info page, A, so you can learn more about Embrace the Truth, but B, because Abdul has a newsletter that you can sign up for. And if you love what you're hearing, as I know you do, then you want to stay in touch with this excellent, excellent ministry. So appreciate everything that Abdul does. His most recent book is called More Than a White Man's Religion, Why the Gospel Has Never Been Merely White, male-centered, or just another religion. You know, I loved this book when it first came out, and I had the privilege of talking to Abdu about it. But now, as we're seeing the ascendancy, or more accurately, the descendancy in the church today through something known as deconstruction, which is just a very clumsy, awkward word that means I've walked away from adhering to the truth of the word, we need to have conversations like this on what the Bible does and doesn't say. And when it is misused and misappropriated, we need to call that out, whether it's past history or present history. And that's why I greatly appreciate the piece that Abdu wrote about how slave owners and segregation has torturously misapplied the scripture. We need to know that. That's part of the history of this country, but it helps us better in the marketplace of ideas to tell the true story of the true gospel of Jesus Christ. So going back to Frederick Douglass and again, his amazing uh, speech on this, um, what does the 4th of July mean to the slave? He talks about the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ. Would you read that for us? Absolutely. And the Christianity of this land he's referring to in the contemporary time was one that um, was being used to suborn slavery and mm -hmm. inequality uh, treatment. So that's what he means by it. This is what he says. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the, the religion of this land Christianity. Mm, wow. So, wow. my goodness, I, you know, sometimes I, I, I just, you read stuff and you're thinking, well, who writes like that anymore? I know. Um, just, I know. <laughs> it's so <laughs> amazing true. Amazing stuff. Oh, my goodness. It's yep. so true. But but the power of conviction, too. I mean, man looketh on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart, First Samuel reminds us. But 
when he used that, I think, Holy Spirit-inspired eloquence to declare mm. the purity of the gospel, you wonder if God used his words as a way of convicting people who torturously tried to misapply in a demonic way mm. uh, the scriptures to justify the economy of their owning slaves. Um, we'll never know because God doesn't give us the eyes to look inside the heart of a man, but one can hope and presume at least that there were at least some who had to consider again if they believed the scripture, it was either going to be their pocketbook and an economy predicated on slavery, or it was going to be the principle and the precepts of God's word. But the two were mutually exclusive at the time. Indeed, indeed. You know, just as an aside too, when I think about Frederick Douglass, and you know, you used a, a phrase right before the break, uh, the gospel eloquence, and I, I love that phrase, by the way, eloquent mm -hmm. in itself. That's a double irony. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, so you have this man who wrote this speech, among other things that he wrote, which was just, uh, just incisive and insightful. And you have Abraham Lincoln arguably one of the best orators of American history as well, certainly one of the best orators um, who ever became president of the United States. Um, at his second inaugural address, he had Frederick Douglass present. And when mm. he was done with his speech, turned around and asked Frederick Douglass, Mr. Douglass, what did you think? And Mr. Douglass said to him, Mr. President, that was a noble effort, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> yes. uh, <laughs> uh, but but the thing that, that I, I find amazing is the the power of the gospel to be this eloquent um, uh, stretching out through history. So if, if, if I can for take a minute here just to stretch out something that I think is amazing. Mm -hmm. So you find that the, the, the beauty of the gospel message in the, in the pages of scripture, thousands and thousands of years old. And then you find this phrase, with this, this passage we just read from Frederick Douglass on what to the slave is the 4th of July. Then you find in, this, in a poem, the stanzas of, of John Greenleaf Whittier, mm. who, was, uh, who wrote a, a poem called Hymn, who was an abolitionist himself when he says, when from each temple of the free, a nation's song ascends to heaven, most heavenly father unto thee, may not our humble prayer be given. Thy children, all, though hue and form, are varied in thine own goodwill, with thine own holy breathings warm and fashioned in thine image still. In mm. other words, everybody in hue and form are different. Race and color are different, but fashioned in thine image still. Then you fast forward to present day and you read this, you hear this passage written by an atheist African um, from Niazaland, which is now called Malawi. And he says this, this is Matthew Paris who visited Africa and saw the, 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 the power of the gospel, not international aid efforts, but the power of the gospel proclaimed evangelistically to change hearts and minds. This is what he says. Now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, mm -hmm. sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. And this is the best part. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. My goodness. Wow. Wow. That's recent. That's years, of, just a few years ago where he's seeing Africa changed for the by, positively through the gospel. So Frederick Douglass saw it uh, more than 150 years ago. Uh, 170 almost years ago now. And um, we saw it in the Bible, and this African atheist is seeing the power of the gospel today. My goodness, what a stretch. No kidding. And and to bring this full circle, the young man that you talked to that said that he was struggling with these passages 
of Scripture, because you talked to him, because you walked him through some of the things we talked about now, tell me how his story changed. Three weeks or so ago, uh, after after that uh, conversation, I got this lovely letter for him thanking me for the conversation and saying, hey, I'm at an Anglican church and I'm attending a Bible study. Wow. Wow. So this is not just history, important though that is. It isn't just remembering the past. It isn't just exposing the deeds of evil where the scriptures are twisted and used for manipulation, but it's all dropped contextually into the bigger picture of contending for the faith. This young man now is now turned back toward the cross and continuing forward on his journey to the foot of the cross. Wow. Abdu, thank you. These are the fastest hours of radio I do because there's so much more I think we could examine. But let me just say on behalf of people listening all over the country, thank you for the gift of your time. You just got back from the UK where you were speaking and yet you make time to be with us. So that means so much. And I want to remind our friends again that Embrace the Truth that is the ministry that Abdu is the president of. They have put on a newsletter, absolutely fabulous. And there isn't a book he's written I wouldn't recommend. Again, his most recent, if today's topic in particular got you thinking more, it's called More Than a White Man's Religion. Here's the subtitle, Why the Gospel Has Never Been Merely White, Male-Centered, or Just Another Religion. Today's conversation underscores that big time. Thank you, Abdu. Thank you, friends. We'll see you next time.